Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast with your host, Scott McMahon. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, filmmaking freedom for the independent. This is a podcast where we focus on making and selling your film for online self-distribution. A perfect way to get started is to pick up the book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion, while doing it. It's available as a paperback, in Kindle ebook, as well as an audiobook. In fact, you can get the audiobook for free when you go to survivetheimplosion.com. When you go to that link, you can sign up with Audible for their free trial and get the book for free. Again, that's at survivetheimplosion.com. Okay, today's episode is a rebroadcast of my interview with Scott Kirkpatrick, the author of the book Writing for the Greenlight, How to Make Your Script the One Hollywood Notices. This interview took place right before his book was published on Amazon. So in this interview, you'll hear us reference it, but in reality, it's been on the market for some time now. Also, you'll hear us talk about Mar Vista Entertainment, which Scott was a former executive at, but has since moved on to become the senior vice president of DRG, which is an international buyer and seller of movies. The title for this episode is The Six Goldmine Genres of Indie Hollywood, What They Need and How You Can Help Give It to Them. So even though Kirkpatrick has written a book for writers, screenwriters, his perspective comes from someone who has worked and is working in what he calls indie Hollywood as like a executive, as a distributor, as a film sales um, representative. So what is the difference between indie Hollywood and Hollywood and independent, the independent film world? Well, you have six major studios, maybe seven if you include Lionsgate, but there's also the film festival circuit in which every independent filmmaker is trying to get their film picked up by one of these distribution companies. And these distribution companies work in the world of indie Hollywood, basically anything outside of the six major studios. And many times the world of the film festivals and indie Hollywood aren't on the same page. And you can learn more about this topic in my previous episode, Don't Take Your Film to a Festival, and that's episode number 120. Anyway, you'll hear us get into the nitty-gritty of what a day in the life is like for a film sales rep who operates in this world of the film markets and indie Hollywood. And all of this is to help the uber-independent filmmaker, you know, someone like yourself, better understand the world that we're playing in. If we're not writing or making a film that work in these film markets, then you may need to look at other business models to see how best to bring your work to the market. So before we jump back into the rebroadcast of my interview with Scott Kirkpatrick, I want to give you the list of the six goldmine genres according to Scott. So drumroll. They are, here's the six, they are the family Christmas dog adventure. So any film that takes place around Christmas time with a dog, that's the central character. (laughs) There's also the family safe tween romance. So usually centering out, centering around a, a, a young tween girl and, a, a, like I say, a very G-rated romance, something you would see on the Disney Channel. And then The Woman in Peril. This is the subgenre of the thriller. This would be something you might see on, like, the Lifetime Network or something like that. But uh, they're very needed, apparently, across the, the world. So a woman in peril genre. Then there's the creature feature, the monster movie. Um, there's also the aging name actor comeback action film. <laughs> so somebody that had some cachet in the past, if you can bring them back in some form or another that wasn't like some past action films, uh, these films still sell. 
And then lastly is the Young Boys Action Adventure film. Uh, again, this is something you might find being picked up by the Disney Channel or uh, you know Nickelodeon or something a- a- along those lines. So now that you have the information, you can see how these genres play into the world of indie Hollywood. So please enjoy the rebroadcast of my interview with Scott Kirkpatrick here on the Film Trooper podcast. So cool. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Scott Kirkpatrick. And... I'm guessing Kirkpatrick is a Irish name. Is that correct? Close. It's actually a Scottish name. Scottish. Uh, okay. Yeah, not to get too detailed, but my my full name, Scott Kirkpatrick, apparently is the address of my lineage in Scotland, in the town of Kirk, St. Patrick, the Church of St. Patrick, and the country of Scotland. So. Ah, get out! Oh, crazy. Well, since my last name is McMahon, my my dad's side is the the Irish heritage of the McMahons, one of the many mix, you know. <laughs> Exactly. So the bottom line is we're both drinkers, so it's all good. <laughs> Very cool. And then, you know, we got our celebration coming up this weekend, I guess, the 17th with St. Patrick's Day. But um, very cool. So you work at Mar Vista Entertainment. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there? And then we can kind of lead into uh, what brought you to write this book, Writing for the Greenlight, How to Make Your Script, The One Hollywood Notices. Yeah. So Mar Vista Entertainment uh, is a international film and television distribution company. I am the executive director of distribution there. Um, I started off on the international side, basically taking American uh, movies and TV shows and selling those to foreign countries. Um, And I've since, over the past two years, uh, moved into North America. So I'm I'm now representing all the television rights, DVD rights, and building up their entire digital distribution division. Um, the company produces, on average, 20 to 25 films a year. Uh, we do co-productions with uh, Disney, co-productions with Nickelodeon. Um, a lot of the movies you'll see on the Lifetime Channel, Hallmark, Up Entertainment, Ion. Those are movies we produce. Wow, that's pretty impressive. You know, looking at your the catalog, um, I love the fact that there's a there's a there's a strong like family uh, entertainment slant. Not that you you have a lot of other genres as well. But it seems like you've uh, been able to um, double down on that niche. And we had talked earlier about you know new filmmakers coming up. You have a lot of young people that are um, that want to be filmmakers, but they they definitely have the aspirations to do some like more serious affair in their perspective, or like they want to be like the next Tarantino of some sort. And a lot of times, um, a lot of independents don't look at the family genre as a genre to go into like it's never talked about like in the uh in the blogosphere or the press it's always like the independent film world is always about the, the latest edgiest you know cutting edge sort of um film or genre or storyline but you, it's very rare that you you know see the press talking about um this particular independent film that came out that features a dog and a, and a horse and a girl you know <laughs> or something like that you know okay. but uh and it's, it's- Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, what, what is your perspective of that? And what have you seen uh, working with Mar Vista? Because, uh, you know, you, you have a newborn and my daughter's 13 years old. And I've grown up watching a lot of family entertainment and thinking to myself, you know, watching my daughter respond to films and television shows that I know that the critics seem to pan or the blogosphere would just like turn their, their, their nose up to. Not that they it's bad, but they just don't get it. They, they're not seeing it from the perspective of who the audience is, which these kids just eat it up and they laugh and they're moved by it and they're, you know, they're transformed by it and they remember it as part of their childhood. But anyway, I just was curious what your perspective is uh, working at Mar Vista from that perspective. 
And not even just MarVista. I mean, MarVista is just one of a couple of uh, distribution companies that I've worked for. I mean, I, I've been doing uh, film and television distribution for well over a decade. Um, within all of that, I mean, it's most screenwriting books, most of the titles talked about in the blogosphere, as you say, I mean, it's, they want to hit those like heavy hitting dramas and everything else. But if you really step back and look at the entire film and television industry as a whole, um, by and far, if, if you really want to have a, a real, you know, way to kind of open the door and, and, and get your foot in there, uh, focus on the 80% of the industry that no one else is really tackling. And that's kids and family. That's uh, action films. That's uh, women-driven thrillers. Uh, those are movies aimed for teenage girls, as you mentioned, your daughter. Um, you know, there's tons of movies out there. When people think of independent Hollywood, everything outside of the studio space, people instantly think Sundance Film Festival, they think Weinstein Company, and that's true. But there's a huge cross-section of Hollywood, and it's the world that I work in. When we're catering to all those TV movies, when we're catering to all those straight-to-digital films and television programs, there's tons of it. And if somebody who's young, who's passionate, or somebody who's maybe just, just shifting gears and wants to give screenwriting a crack wherever they are in their life, um, you can go try to tackle the studios, and I wish you the best of luck. But if you really want to have a true opportunity, talk to people and get, get your foot in the door and have a real opportunity to showcase what you can bring to the table, go for Indie Hollywood. And the thing is, is that those movies uh, offer writers just as many challenges as anything else, um, and most just don't write for it. Yeah, definitely. So in your so in your book, you kind of mentioned like the, the the premise is sort of like unveiling what really goes on in terms of the perspective, like a distribution company, production company, of what they would really benefit from uh, from screenwriters. And so a screenwriter knowing sort of the back end what to expect, they can you know craft their skill or use their talents to craft stories and scripts that give them a best chance of you know, uh, getting picked up and getting work published, getting getting it made, which is a huge accomplishment. Uh, can you kind of elaborate a little bit more about maybe some of the highlights? Because I have to make everybody understand, like the book comes out tomorrow. So it's not it's not even available yet. So if you I'll make sure to put the links up, but it's up on it'll be up on Amazon. And uh, yeah, the book comes out tomorrow. So I haven't had a chance to get my copy yet. So um, when I do, I can read through it more. But if you can give us a little highlights about you know, that perspective or just kind of maybe breaking down some of those barriers? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I do go into depth talking about the business and of how Hollywood works, how distribution works, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the real thing full away from the book is that it is one of the few resources out there that really gives screenwriters an actual game plan, like a real world strategy of how to cross this huge bridge that no other screenwriting books really seem to offer any insight on. Uh, you know, most screenwriting books out there, you know, could, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Um, you know, when I was younger, I wanted to be a writer-director. Uh, I was really enthusiastic about production. I started off in production before I ever got to the business side, so I completely understand the passion novice writers have for their craft and really respect it as a true art form. Uh, I shifted into... Uh, the business end of things, just because I found as much creativity putting deals together uh, as writers do finishing their scripts. 
Um, but when I was kind of at that phase in my life where I was writing and I was, you know, submitting scripts to agents and doing all that, I got nowhere and I could never figure out why. And I would read every screenwriting book that existed. I would read every filmmaking book that existed. And they all seemed to kind of say the same thing. So-and-so had a great idea. They wrote a script. Then their agent got it to XYZ person, and all of a sudden their movie got produced. And it's like they never really filled in the gaps about how, how that all really happened, you know, <laughs> yeah. how they got from point A to point B, and, and how it was that, like, the money suddenly came around to make this multi-million dollar film and all this other stuff. And it's like, when I got into distribution, and the first time I ever went to the Cannes Film Festival or any of these huge markets, it was like the biggest eye-opening revelation of my life, and I realized how incredibly simple it actually is, but no books ever talk about it. And so that, that was my real passion for writing. this. It was like just meeting so many screenwriters who are so talented, but because they're just writing kind of the wrong thing and they're talking about it, just not exactly in the right way, they're going nowhere. And so the book is really just one of the few resources that I think really exists. It's just like, look, do this, this, and this, and your opportunities are going to completely start opening up for you. You know, it's like the, the, the title is like living dead on. So how do you get your work noticed? There's so many scripts out there. Uh, and, and my answer is just, you know, write these couple of genres, focus on this style, uh, and then discuss your script in this manner and approach people like this. Uh, and it's going to be a complete game changer for you. Very cool. Is there any like uh, one specific uh, tip you could give just to give like a like a like a free like a freebie like you're some kind of drug dealer like I'll give you a freebie and then you could check out the book later. Um, like I think you kind of mentioned like um, not necessarily going to an agent first like there's there's better ways to be more productive about maybe pro approaching like a, a production company. Uh, is there anything like specific like that you can elaborate on? On that point, I can certainly talk about that. Um, you know, most streamlining books out there, the last chapter is like, okay, you finished your script, great. Uh, go get an agent now. And my real-world opinion is that's actually bad advice. Um, you don't need an agent when you're starting off. Uh, actually, an agent can be kind of detrimental to you. I, I go into a lot of the details as to why in the book, mm -hmm. but the thing is, is that, you know, if you, you actually have the capability of, you know, discussing your project directly with production companies. You can hop on LinkedIn or any number of other sources these days and, and get a direct access to some of these people. Um, and, you know, the truth is they are looking for writers. They are looking for talented people to work with. So there is something to work out there. There is a deal to be made if you're coming to them with the right types of scripts. In the book, I talk about, I call them six goldmine genres. And these are like the genres that no matter what's going on in the world, no matter how bad an economic crisis is, no matter what trends are going on in Hollywood on any given day, these six genres are like always in demand. Uh, if you go to somebody with these and you go to them solo, not through an agent, they will listen to you. They will pay attention to you. And uh, when it comes to representation or anything like that, um, the truth is if you can, you know, open a menu at a restaurant and order your food, uh, you can read a contract. And if you can ask for mayo on the side or anything like that, you can negotiate. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's not knowing the little points to talk about. It's not knowing the little things to mention and say, like, I, I deserve this. I want to work it more like that. And if a writer's uncomfortable with it, that's fine. They can hire a lawyer 
And a lawyer is going to be very dedicated to them because it's a one-on-one relationship. It's a one-on-one client. Whereas when you're dealing with an agent and you're a newbie, you haven't sold anything before, touting that you have an agent and that you're represented doesn't mean you're going to get work because they're too busy focused on the writers that are already getting work. Right. So you'll still have to hustle and everything else all on your own. So I talk about how to hustle. Uh, you know, I talk about how to get better at uh, uh, pitching your title, being more comfortable, discussing your work, et cetera. How many, um, in your experience, like has how often does somebody come with a finished product to you uh, that maybe that you guys acquire or you license um, as opposed to like, I know you mentioned sometimes you guys get a chance to get at the script stage where you do a co-production or, or whatnot. Like, I don't know what the percentage is like from something that starts with the script, the production side, or, you know, the start from the scratch, starting from scratch versus somebody showing up with a finished product. Um, is there a percentage of the type of projects that you guys see on a, a yearly basis like that? No, it always comes differently. Um, and in truth, a lot of the movies that we produce, uh, we sort of, and it's not just Marvista. I mean, it's every company that I know of that I've ever been a part of or, or other production companies that I'm just aware of that I have friends at. I mean, in truth, most of the movies do not follow that line of logic of let's first write a great script and then let's uh, put some money together and then let's cast it. It usually works the opposite direction. You usually find out, okay, who is it, what TV channel, what production company is interested in producing a movie? Uh, and then they start looking for certain types of content and they team up with production companies or distribution companies who make that kind of content. And then they work together and broker a deal and figure out some of the finances and figure out what types of cast members they would need. And then they usually kind of reverse engineer it and build a story out of that. So, a lot of the writers that we're looking for, and it's not, again, just not, it's not just Mar Vista. These are conversations that happen in conference rooms all over L.A. and New York all the time. Um, the movie kind of gets put together, and then we go hire the writers we want. Uh, and that's why the concept of the book is really writing scripts that follow these niche genres because they get you noticed, and you get seen as potentially being one of those writers that could be hey, I'm in a jam and I need a script in three weeks. Can you do it? Versus you polish off your script and make it perfect and it goes and it sits in a, a closet someplace. Maybe a damn good script, but it's, it's like, okay, that's a great script, uh, but we don't produce that kind of movie and it doesn't really, it's not going to move the needle for us right now. We'll consider it later. Well, then when the uh, clock is ticking and you know, an executive needs to, to hire a writer real fast to get a movie in motion, they're not going to go sift through all those scripts to find the perfect one. They're going to go and, and find that writer they already know can deliver. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually interesting because that's a good thing you brought up is the um, the dream is to write something, create something uh, in your own little you know office space and then sell it. And then, like you said, is and everybody rallies around to make your film. Uh, as opposed to you're right when you know attending like American Film Market or if you go to the Cannes Film Market, the same group of people uh, you know, travel from the American film market to the Cannes film market. And uh, what are the other film markets that the same, essentially the same group of people are, you know, travel to uh, each show? Is, there, is, this, is it Berlin is also another market and Singapore? Berlin is one. Um, Toronto is one. Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, yes, there is a, there's a huge market in Singapore um, called ATF, Asian Television Forum. Um, there's 
Hong Kong Film Art that takes place in March. I mean, look, we can go month by month. So January, there's, there's Nasty in Miami. There's Sundance. In February, there's Berlin. In March, there's Hong Kong Film Art. In April, there's Mid TV in Cannes, France. In May, there's the Cannes Film Festival. The summer, there's really not much going on. And then it all kind of rallies around September with Toronto. Uh, October, there's a market called Midcom in Cannes again. Uh, November's AFM and December's ATF. There's a lot of little markets in there too, um, and I've been to most of them. And uh, I love the summertime because it's one of the few times of the year where I don't have to travel all that much. But I used to go to Cannes three times a year. People only think of Cannes as the big film festival, but in truth, right. um, the TV markets, I did a lot more business with the TV markets than the film festival. Interesting. So when you like, been so it kind of help demystify or dispel like this um, belief of again like the the a lot of the filmmakers and people listening they're they're coming from that part of the dream of everything that we're sold to the American Idol syndrome or the voice syndrome um, where you know you have talent you you know display it you share it and you get picked up and it's like you get, you're swept up in this ultimate uh, ride where your whole dreams come true. And like you said, going to the market, you're reverse engineering it because you're saying, okay, here's what the market is asking for. Meaning like just cut to the chase and going, okay, so this foreign territory is looking for these types of material. And then you're saying like, okay, well, I know a production company that really specializes in, you know, movies with horses and girls or whatever it might be, you know? So it's like, let's go talk to them and then, or broker a deal or how does that necessarily work out in, ter in terms of like you say, reverse engineering it? Um, I don't know, kind of take us through like a day in the life, uh, very, very as succinct as possible. So we can kind of get the idea of like, oh, I see. So if we were a writer uh, or a filmmaker, or that had a working relationships with some production companies that f that focused on these specific type of genre of films, and even though they, you know, we made it had like a short film or had a script that they liked, and we just make sure we have, we keep those relationships intact, there might be an opportunity where a a distribution source, um, a market, whoever or whatever territory needs something that we could fulfill, you know, fill that need. It's almost, it's like you said, it's simple. It's, I guess I'm assuming it's like a work order, you know, like, um, you know, whatever. Brazil needs this much. This is the work order for these film content. Can we fulfill these orders? Uh, kind of, this is me kind of trying to use my common sense to put it all together. But if you can kind of maybe dispel, dispel some of the myth that goes around for um, the distribution side of things. Sure. Uh, I mean, first off, that's a humongous question, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll break it apart best I can. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, I, I, first off, I do not want to discourage anyone who's a writer and, and who thinks that what I'm saying is depressing in any way or is, is, you know, contrary to how passionate they are about writing. If they weren't passionate about, look, writing a script is really hard to do. It's a huge challenge. It is. It is. It can take months, if not years, to complete one script. Um, and it's, it, it's daunting. So my view with all of this, and the reason I'm putting all this information out there is if you're going to put that much effort into a script, uh, I, I want to see you make some money off it, and I want to see your career start moving forward. I don't want it just to be sitting and collecting dust, and you look at it and go, well, I wrote that, and I'm very proud of it. I want you to gain something from it. Um, so... A, a typical situation on, on kind of the scale that I'm in, which is a, you know, indie distribution company scenario or a, a we call them pre-sell 
theatrical all rights type uh, movie scenarios. So these will be movies that are sometimes up to $10 million, sometimes a little bit more, but usually a lot less. Um, you know, if they have an idea, if they have a couple of outlets, or if they have a, a style of movie they really, really like, uh, they're not going to just run out there and throw all their money at it. You know, they're going to make very calculated, um, smart, risky investments towards which projects they're going to invest in. And if I'm a distributor, um, you know, I have limited cash flow. Uh, I have a staff to pay. Uh, I have office lease to rent and all of that. So if I'm going to go invest in a movie, I'm not going to go to my bank account and just start pulling money out and pay for it. I'm going to partner with people. We're all going to kind of chip in together. And so what I would do is if I'm going to go sell all rights to a movie, um, I would go to one of these film markets like Cannes, like Berlin, whatever, and I have a series of meetings that I have every single day. Uh, and these are all set up in the 45 days before the market, but every half hour I'll have a meeting, and at 9 a.m. my client might be so-and-so from Germany, the, the biggest all-rights buyer from Germany. My 9.30 might be so-and-so, the biggest all-rights buyer in Japan. 10 and 11, you know, all through the days, ranging from Turkey, Australia, and wherever. They're coming because they want to buy movies and have first access to movies for their country. Uh, and I'm going because I have a slate of movies that I think could potentially be big sellers. Uh, none of them exist yet, by the way. These are just like kind of theoretical movies that are semi in motion. Right. And so my objective is to go to this market and broker a deal with that client in Germany, with that client in Japan. And they're going to put up a certain percentage of the budget. Their percentage of the budget depends on what country they're from, the population, the value of the currency, and everything else. This is all business jargon, I understand, but like that's kind of how it works. So that way, when I'm a distributor and I come back home from the market, uh, I have basically a stack of signed contracts uh, that I can then go to a bank with and say, hey, will you now loan me the full budget of the movie so that I can go make it, and I have guaranteed contracts here of people who will reimburse me so I can reimburse you. And that's how movies get funded. So in that process, you know, every single client kind of has their little push and their little say about what should be in the movie and what shouldn't. And then it's our job to basically deliver the movie that's going to make everybody as happy as possible. That's kind of a very big picture way of it. It's never that smooth and easy, um, <laughs> but that's kind of the thing. Now, in the first chapter of my book, uh, I, I, it's called the crazy little thing called Hollywood logic. And I walk through a hypothetical scenario of a made up movie, but it kind of started as a germ of an idea that really happened. And it was literally sitting in an office with my then boss. This was several years ago. And, uh, we're flipping through, getting ready for one of the markets and we're flipping through and he's like, Oh, you know what? We, we, we haven't sold, uh, uh this type of movie in a long time and you're meeting with this buyer. Uh, let's make up a movie and, and uh, tell them it's going to be ready. And then I had to go to the graphic designer. We made up a poster. I took that to the market and I pitched it around and we actually came back uh, with, with enough money to uh, fund that movie. And this goes against the other comment you made too, uh, which is which genres sell and which ones don't. We had another movie. We had other movies that we were selling. Some of them were like dramas and 
comedies and they had big cast names like already kind of attached to them. Uh, but it was, it was these other genres that would sell like hotcakes. And that's kind of when I realized that, you know, these are the genres to focus on if you really want to get ahead. So I, I have no idea if that answered your question. No, it's but. fantastic, actually. I was wondering, um, do you mention the specific genres in the book or uh, can you give us a little uh, tidbit right now of what genres that you... Or, or is this, is it, does it change every year which genre is hot or which can sell easier? No, no, that's sort of the, the whole concept of the book, by the way. Okay. Not only are you making a game plan and a strategy, uh, but the thing is, my whole view is, you know, technology and trends, they change all the time. The principles, they stay the same forever. So the idea of the book is follow the principles of Hollywood, follow the principles of the indie side of Hollywood, and you will get noticed. Um, so the genres that I'm talking about are, you know, uh, family films that you're talking about. They're, you know, specifically, uh, uh, I call them mm-hmm. Christmas dog adventure films. <laughs> um, <laughs> something as silly as that, where it's like, it's like people never really understand the value of a Christmas movie. It's a holiday that comes around every year and it's almost two full months are dedicated to it that you know i have people from all over the world asking me about christmas movies what christmas movies are coming up uh when they're going to be around trust me if you add a, a dog on the cover make it very family safe uh it's, it's a relatively easy formula to follow um those things move like hotcakes so uh there's there's that but it also kind of focuses more on as i said the women in peril thrillers um and for anyone out there who thinks that, you know, the, the types of scripts that I'm talking about aren't, they're too formulaic and, and they're kind of insulting to somebody who really values the craft of screenwriting, uh, there's a lot of opportunity in the genre of, of a woman in peril thriller. There's a lot of opportunity in, in, a, in a, a tween romance, you know, a young girl's tween romance. Like, especially if you're a male writer, um, if you want to talk about showcasing how talented you are, if you can authentically nail, uh, uh, a female character going through the complexities of being 13, 14 years old, but you're going to get some, some, you know, some eyeballs on your work. Who, um, is it, is it different countries like, or is it just sort of, um, universally, um, people, territories, they just respond better to like, Oh, great. You do have a, a Christmas movie with a dog in it. It's perfect. Or you have like, um, why is it something about the women in peril, is it psych- psychologically something there or the sales or have you been able to die? Di- di- I can't even pronounce an English word here. Uh, basically, have you been able to figure out like why those particular um, setup or the, the genres, uh, those specific ways, those genres are told that just seem to sell better? Is, is there, I don't know. I'm just curious, like what's in the, the psychological waters of the different uh, countries and the, mar- the markets that you have to, that you get a chance to talk to and how they respond to it. Cause obviously I'm not a consumer in Brazil or South Africa or something like that. So I don't know what sort of the, the temperament is for um, filmed entertainment uh, and what responds to them. Or, or like, I guess it looks like universal. It's more of like a, 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 a carnal um, response to things. Correct. Uh, it, you know, when you're, talk, when you're talking global, first off, any distribution company, the company I work for, others, all the ones I've worked for in the past, um, you know, we get a certain chunk of our money from the U.S. Uh, and then we get the rest internationally. And Canada is included in the international circle. Um, and 
the the films that are interesting in Canada are different than the films that are interesting here. The holidays that are celebrated in the Middle East are different than the holidays celebrated in Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, the remember, like I have a really tough time selling Christmas movies in Australia because they're in the Southern Hemisphere and it's boiling hot. <laughs> it's yeah, it's December. <laughs> Um, so I can't, if, if I'm selling a Christmas movie or a holiday themed movie, you know, they prefer the one, unless it has big cast in it, that doesn't have a lot of snow. Uh, so, it, you know, and, and I want to really push this point for a writer, any writer out there listening to this is that don't try to write a movie for the international market, write a movie that's very true to life. Write a movie that's very true to your experiences. Write a movie that's very universally understood. And a universal understanding is, is something we all feel and we connect to. Uh, but if you try to jump in and, and assume you understand uh, what the Germans are really after or what the Japanese are really after, you'll fail. And I don't mean it to sound harsh in any way. It's just that like no one can really predict it. And they're always changing their minds because trends change. But a, a universal theme is a principle to follow. So when you're talking women in peril thrillers, why? For the most part, women make most of the choices about what is being watched at any given time in any given household, whether they are buying content for their kids, whether they're buying content for themselves or themselves and their spouse or whomever. Um, so that's a really, really strong uh, target demographic. Why tween girls and not tween boys? Frankly, tween girls are kind of out there. They're much more curious about what their peers are up to and what they're supposed to be doing at a certain age. Uh, younger boys at that same age are much happier trying to get access to an R-rated action film. Uh, and I'm not talking specifically to us on the podcast who have an affinity for art films, foreign films, and things like that, because I love them. And one of the great things about going to Cannonball is I get access to this wonderful foreign content that I'll never see again. So don't be fooled by my... My business disguise. I'm, I'm a film lover at heart. Yeah. Uh, but on the global scale of things, um, universal themes are it. And uh, I, I definitely push writers uh, to avoid heavy dramas and comedies. These things just don't translate well. Um, a verbal joke, if you want to write smart, witty humor, is very tough to uh, translate, and it doesn't come across well in a foreign country. Um, and raunchy comedies that are really successful here in the U.S. don't do well overseas. Um, so it, it's just that's a harder genre to write. And drama is just, unless it has huge cast, uh, most of my clients aren't interested. And if most of my clients aren't interested, they don't get funded. Yeah. It's actually funny because when I was AFM, I was uh, pushing my uh, independent American comedy, you know, that I was told as well, like, hey, you know what? Um, the number one of you know, comedy star in the world at that particular time was Rowan Atkinson of Mr. Bean and Johnny English because he doesn't say anything. All his f comedy was physical and it was also family friendly. So he had two things going for him, family friendly plus uh, physical comedy translated to almost any country, you know, and that was a big eye opener of like, oh, that makes sense. As well as you were mentioning, you know, these various um, proven genres that 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 they don't have to be formulaic. It's simply, it's interesting because if you, if any company went out, uh, announced like, oh, we're a distribution company and we have um, these genres or the, this setup for a story, but we need writers to write something, you know, that, that <laughs> I guarantee you, like all those art, you know, writers that had like their, their 
passion project or art project be like, oh, there's a job? Okay, sure. What's, what are the limitations? Okay, I've got one girl. She's uh, in a lighthouse. Okay, go. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, so people, people will just get to, the, get to work and like, okay, well, what kind of creative story can I create in these, these parameters? And that's sort of, I'm assuming, sort of the world you guys work in, which is like, okay, we got a buyer. You know, we sold the poster, we sold the premise. Now we need to put the pieces together and get a writer to like, well, here's the limitations or here's the, you know, the, the creative parameters. Um, we need to flush it out so we can get into production. Um, um, I'm, I'm so, you know, again, not, not everything's that easy and not everything is, uh, every deal is different, which makes your job super interesting because you said each deal is a creative opportunity to see how you can put the pieces together and it doesn't make it boring whatsoever, if I'm correct. So Yeah, that's completely correct. And, and I do want to uh, kind of, you, you brought up an interesting point there, uh, kind of hidden within everything you were saying. And that is that, uh, you know, if any of the writers listening want to pursue passion projects, they absolutely should. And they should continually work on those. Uh, what I'm explaining is exactly what you said, which is when an opportunity pops up where you're going to get paid to write, which is the real goal in screenwriting, um, you're going to say yes to it, and you should, uh, regardless of how you know, uh, daunting the challenge might be or how unappealing at first the script might be. The script will always become challenging because they're all tough to write. Um, but my sort of view on this is, you know, if, if you kind of, just as we reverse engineer putting a movie together and financing it and everything else, reverse engineer your thinking about how you're approaching your career. You know, it's, it's not, the, the process is not you go to film school and you get a great education on film, or maybe you never went to film school and you're just always had an interest and then you go, you know, work really hard on a script and pour your heart and soul into it. And then you go sell it. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's more, you go out, you write the seemingly formulaic or expected stuff. You write the stuff that Hollywood needs and what we depend on. And then you get continually commissioned to continue writing new scripts for new people that follow these formulaic seemingly genres. And then people start to get to know you. They start to understand that you are a writer who can deliver. You're a writer who can write fast. You can write dependable. You can turn in a script on time. You can turn in a script that meets the needs of the production, that, that meets the needs and the budget levels the line producers are working with, uh, that hits all the points that the, the director is after, but is also meeting all the things that the distributors are saying, we need X, Y, Z elements in there so we can satisfy our major investor in Russia. Um, and if you can deliver that, uh, you, you will become that writer that I'm talking about, which is, you know, your stuff is not being filed neatly in a back storage room. You're the phone call that people make when they need somebody uh, on the spot. And once you develop that reputation and once you develop that go-to kind of behavior, later in life, once you've amassed the contact, you've developed the reputation of dependability and developed the uh, reputation of someone who can write content that works, then you can go, you know, I have these other projects, and you'll have a whole network of people to talk to you who will listen to you and uh, will help you get from point A to point B with the stuff you're really passionate about. That's how Kaufman did it. You know, that's how a lot of these really huge writers do it. And if you believe that, you know, these huge mega writers, the ones that are like household names, um, are, you know, sitting at a conference room table pounding, 
pounding the fist on the table saying, you know, it's my way or the highway or anything like that. It's emphatically not true. They understand that, you know, if a company's going to be putting money into it, they have to deliver a script that meets it. Uh, a great example right now, um, I can't say the name, but uh, we're working with a huge writer. And, and he's a guy who has written scripts that, you know, anyone listening to this would be envious to even just be in a room with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our company's talking about putting in some money into the project and the budget levels more than what we're willing to do. So I'm trying to broker deals to find that deficit of the money. And, you know, we're all kind of working together. And, and I'm not, the conversations I'm having with he and his agent and his reps and all, they're not, uh, well, he wants it this way. They're more, what can we do? How can we change it so we can match the budget you have? It's a, comp- they're comp- you know, they're, they're, it's a compromise. They're yeah. working with us. Uh, and that's how it all works. And he's a big shot. And he did it because he made steps through his whole career, writing what was needed, uh, serving the needs of Hollywood, built the reputation, and now whenever he makes a phone call, anyone would gladly take it. And we did. Let me ask you, this is, does a, a writer, a screenwriter, do they need to be in Los Angeles to uh, sort of build that career, you believe? Or no. is, has anybody been able to, that you've seen, been able to do it remotely? You can do it remotely. You, you don't need to be in L.A. I think it's very important to have L.A. experience. I talk about that in the book. Like, um, if you are able to... Uh, okay, good example. You mentioned AFM. Uh, I think most of the people listening to the podcast know the American film market, perhaps if you have been before. Um, but I think that there is a way to attend AFM uh, that is very different than the logic of going and buying a ticket or getting a badge and walking around and trying to hawk your script or, or make introductions. You can volunteer for AFM. You can volunteer and be paid to uh, arrive. Um, you will have firsthand access to all the booths, to all the distributors. You can be, even be an intern for one of the distributors and listen in on all those conversations. Uh, and, you know, if you're doing that, you're here in L.A., if only for two weeks. Uh, you are getting a real sense of how the business truly works at a business level. Um, and you are overhearing the real conversations in real time as they happen. Uh, and you're getting a valuable network of people. Now, you can't take advantage of it in the sense of exploit it and, you know, force your, your work on the people that you're working with at that exact moment, but you're building your network. I think it's very important to have LA experience, to know how the city works, to know how you know, to kind of get the nuances of the landscape. But look, I've worked with writers who are all over the country uh, who don't even live in the United States. Our our company and many companies, we do lots of co-productions in Canada. We do lots of co-productions with uh, entities overseas. So having a writer in Toronto or, or having a writer in Vancouver or uh, St. Louis or wherever, uh, it happens. We do, I'd say actually we're doing two or three movies right now, this year alone, uh, with a team in South Carolina. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. One film in South Carolina, one film in Florida, and I think there's a third movie kind of in the southeast there. But I mean, these aren't even states that you normally think of as like, you know, not the typical film credit states like New Mexico or Louisiana. I mean, these are deep south states that, you know, you wouldn't think of as having much of a crew or anything like that. And the lighters are coming from there. Uh, some of the money's coming out of there. And, you know, they're being filmed there. Yeah, I have um, I know some actors that live out there in Atlanta just because they call it like Hollywood South. 
in terms of having access to, uh, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, plus South Carolina, North Carolina, and Florida, just to have that stretch. And also, you know, a lot of people of uh, know people up in Vancouver, sort of like Hollywood North, you know. <laughs> so it's all these, the, yeah, it's very interesting that way. Hey, this is like... We got, we got, we, Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You were going to say something. No, no. I was going to say we have a guy in uh, Vancouver right now. We just sent him up there to to manage a production in a couple of weeks. I'm going to do a crazy trip of uh, uh, Toronto, then New York, then Denver, all in the span of like four or five days. I mean, you know, most people don't think Denver, but I mean, there's real opportunity there. There's major companies there and channels. So yeah. go on. I'm sorry. Oh, no. It's like Colorado is like the next uh, Silicon Valley. There's so many uh, tech companies kind of popping up there right now. Um, it's you know quite interesting the the whole Colorado landscape between Boulder and Denver, so that totally makes sense. <laughs> um, I had this one question is it's this is sort of me personally. Um, you know um, Schuler M. Moore, the uh, entertainment lawyer, and he wrote this book called The Biz. But he also wrote this article not too long ago uh, for I forget what particular uh, blog it was for, but he was talking about the um, the danger of the pre-sales. Um, collapsing um, once sort of like Netflix uh, goes global um, because the role of the foreign pre-sales, which funds a lot of what the independent film world uh, depends on in terms of raising the budget. I was curious what your thoughts are or what the the climate is amongst other uh, distribution companies um, of this aspect of the the business model if the foreign pre-sales... don't hold relevance anymore or or, or if, will it always hold relevance you know that's it, sort of a bigger question and i didn't mean to throw that on, on you but i was just i was curious because i this is the first opportunity i had to talk to somebody from on the other side as opposed to being someone on the outside speculating yeah uh so so in answer to that um foreign pre-sales is a pretty straightforward concept because we've heard about it so much but remember at the end of the day all that's going on is a company uh that's a third party to to you uh, is interest, you're looking for somebody basically to work with. You, you are saying, I will invest X in a project if you will pay Y in dollars and we'll come up with a deal. In truth, it really doesn't matter who that third-party uh, final company is. Um, the business really just works on brokering deals, financing projects, producing the movies, and then getting it out into the ethos of, of you know, the, the global consuming world. Um, so. For a second, since you brought up Netflix going global, and, and it's not just Netflix. I mean, there's Amazon with its Prime as well service. There's, uh, there's you know, Google. There's, there's a lot of these companies that are really spreading out. But at the end of the day, when Amazon is doing its original series, and I remember bringing up the idea a long time ago that Amazon would be doing original series and Netflix would be doing original series. And a couple of years ago, I was a crazy person for even suggesting this, and now it's the reality. Um, and they're coming up with some of the best award-winning content that there is. So, uh, you know, instead of me going and brokering a deal with uh, a TV channel here in the U.S. or overseas, in the next five years, and I'm already kind of starting that process now, I will be trying to broker deals directly with Netflix or broker deals directly with Hulu or with Google or whomever. Uh, that's kind of the next phase. They're not – nothing is changing. And when I talk, when I say in the book, like all I'm talking about is the principles of Hollywood. Don't follow trends, follow principles. Um, 
that principle is exactly the same. It's we're, we're just doing deals, and I'm going out. I'm bringing a couple of ideas that we think as a company are very strong. We're delivering them to clients that we think we can do business with, and we're both agreeing to fund 50-50 or however we want to do the deal with them as the end user. Uh, I mean, look at Vimeo today. We all think of Vimeo as this entity that is, you know, three years ago was just, it was a password-protected way to show a screener of your movie. They're a big player now. <laughs> you know, I, I went to their offices, you know, back in September uh, in New York. They're huge. And, you know, it's one of these environments which is all, like, cool and trendy with beanbags and stuff. But, uh, you know, they're out trying to make some real plays. They have, uh, they have some real great original content out right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying, I've, I've actually been on the phone with an agent trying to buy a movie. Uh, acquire, I shouldn't say buy a movie. I'm trying to acquire the rights so that I can sell the movie to all the platforms that I sell to. Um, and, you know, he, he, I'm competing with some of these digital platforms. Like, they're willing to throw down some real money just so it plays on that one platform, whereas I'm trying to pick it up so I can put it on all the platforms. You know, and it's just an interesting thing. But pre-sales, are they going to go away as we know them? Of course. Uh, but is the concept exactly the same? Are, are, am, is my line of work, you know, taking a talented uh, writer, taking a, a strong idea, presenting it to people who have the ability to invest money into making it a reality and then brokering all that together, will that still continue? Yes. It's just maybe the names on the Rolodex who I'm calling might be different and the company names might be different. Uh, but it's the same concept. Oh, interesting. It's kind of like um, for the world of like the Uber independent filmmaker, the one, the people that don't have sort of any connections or they don't feel like they have any connections or any value in terms of they don't have any name actors. Uh, maybe their genre is a little offbeat, um, but they're, you know, they're building the project through like the crowdfunding platform. Um, you can almost, if if done correctly, a in, Uber independent filmmaker could use the crowdfunding platform to get all their money up front, use it as a pre-sale. Like, okay, we have X amount of people that bought into it. You know, we know we raised $100,000. What we really should do is maybe make the film for like $25,000 and use $75,000 maybe to cover, um, you know, our, our, our fees, you know, our budget, our fees or profit, and then use a lot of it to, for marketing, uh, for direct distribution through EST uh, because, most, if, if I'm correct, most uh, independent films can't get onto cable VOD without uh, normally having a formal distribution uh, agreement in place because the cable companies, they don't want to deal with every little independent fil- uh, producer. They like to just deal with like the studios or a reputable um, a distribution company. So they need to even um, be vetted. And, and the numbers that are coming in on the blog sphere about like, oh, this film performed this well on VOD or this is how much they made on VOD. And the Uber independent filmmaker sees VOD as sort of like the iTunes numbers or the electronic sell through the digital downloads. And the reality is, if I'm correct, it's they're, they're separate. So it's like a true indie, like Uber indie, who raised money through a crowdfunding campaign, who's selling it directly through Vimeo On Demand or VHX or Distrify or putting on iTunes or Amazon Prime, the digital download or the EST side of things, they... Um, they have to work on transactions and not necessarily the, the deals that uh, a cable company would push through all the different factors that they have. And um, I guess what I'm saying is like the evolution of the crowdfunding 
if uh, those producers get savvier in terms of like they could use the same principles like you were talking about in Hollywood, which is do you have a form of distribution and do you have a uh, enough uh, demand for your product that is matched up with a price point that then you can decide like, you know, what budget do you make your product for in order, in order to recoup a profit and cover your costs as opposed to a lot of things. It's like if some, if a filmmaker raises a hundred thousand dollars, they're going to make a hundred thousand dollar movie and they don't leave themselves any leeway for any, all the other stuff about the business. And, and then they, their whole strategy is like hope and pray. Like they made something great that somebody will buy it. And sometimes that's where a lot of people are left hanging, which is like they're disappointed that the numbers don't always add up. But um, that was sort of just me pontificating. But uh, I was curious what your thoughts are for that world of the Uber independent filmmaker working in that playground of the crowdfunding and so on. And it maybe possibly bring, you know, at what point do they bring it to a distribution company so that there is like a win-win situation or like the best case scenario? I probably said a lot. Well, um, <laughs> no, 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 it's fine, fine. Uh, I mean, I, I was actually kind of drawing a lot of parallels between several of, of topics here. Uh, I mean, first off, as a writer, um, you know, you're sitting in a room by yourself. You're writing, 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 writing scripts. Uh, you know, if you just have the scripts and send those out, they're not going to get seen. You have to hustle them. You have to call people. You have to get people excited about it. You have to, you know, you have to basically get people to, to get excited so you can showcase your work to them. Uh, and that's kind of where you get that pitch meeting. And then that's where you get to present other ideas. And then you kind of get to be this like go-to person and, and they will start to work with you and will slowly start to give you some work and commission work from you. So you start basically with scripts that are going to market you the best and then you have to talk about them in a way that are going to market your abilities the best so you can secure the deal. Now, apply that exact same principle to everything you just said. Mm -hmm. uh, the Uber indie filmmaker who's making a movie for 5000 bucks or $20,000, and I've made a few of those, and I've been on lots of sets, and they're hellish experiences, but you learn more from those than anything else. <laughs> um, and the hardest part is, as you're saying, is just completing them. And if you don't complete it, you have nothing to talk about. But just as where most screenwriting books fail new screenwriters by not really telling them what to do with the project after it's done or how to talk about it or anything else and get their name and their work out there, a.k.a. market themselves, most newbie filmmakers fall into the same pattern and problem, which is they, they raise the money however they raise it, and then they apply all the money to finishing the movie, and then they have this movie and they don't know what the hell to do with it. And they go, okay, well, I'll put it on iTunes and see what happens. And then nothing happens. They get, and maybe they do like a little bit of a marketing stunt and they get a tiny blip. And that's kind of the life of the movie. And then, you know, or they might go after a couple of distribution companies and they get these giant agreements and they don't understand what the hell these mean or why they get royalty statements six months later that say that their movie's now negative $25,000 or whatever. <laughs> Apply that same marketing concept of think about your end result first. Just as you're writing a script, you have to know where you're going to end it. So think about your career path in the same way. If you're going to go make a movie like that, uh, what are you going to do with it after it's done? Are you going to build in all the marketing elements you need? And exactly as you're saying, when you're budgeting the movie, are you just budgeting the movie or are you budgeting for the, the lifespan of the movie so that you have marketing money in there, so that you have 
finishing money in there so that when the movie is done, you can set up a website, you can promote it, you can build an audience, you can drive traffic to it. That way, if you decide to, on a self-distribution route, place it on iTunes or any of the other platforms, which you can do solo, uh, you know, you will now have an audience to drive traffic to it. Whereas if you go with a distribution company, you are able to give them all these tools, behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, marketing components, uh, stills, all this other stuff that now the distribution company can use to do that same process, which is drive traffic to your movie, um, you know, you're going to see some real results out of it. So I don't even know if I answered your question here, but I mean, like, how does it move? No, no, it's, it's funny. Because I don't know if I even had a question. I was think I was just like I said, I was just pontificating. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. You 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 brought up the pr- same principles. If you're starting at the script stage, and you have to do a set of marketing, but you have to know what your end result is, and you have to do the hustle. And the same thing if you do the Uber independent film route. If you go crowdfunding route, you know you have to know the end result. The, the end result is essentially essentially getting out to the audience and and hopefully making your money back. If a, and you really want to make your profit and make a profit. And a distribution company has the same thing. Like your world is, I've got a set of clients. I've got, you know, all over the world, different buyers. We try to construct a deal to make sure that we are edging our bets the best we can based off these, you know, uh, predetermined sort of contracts I've put in place, which makes it much easier for a bank to go, great, I'm going to give you money versus this uber independent filmmaker who just has an idea and doesn't and doesn't have an end result of where, how they were going to get paid back versus the distribution company says, great, you already have these uh, contracts, basically these promise notes in place that says that if you finish the film within this budget on time and then this these contracts will pay you X amount of dollars, we know that we'll get our money back and then you know everyone who's involved with the production side will get their fee you know based off like you know the director will get their particular fee, the actors and so on. so everybody gets their, that covered. It allows, if I'm correct, allows the distribution company and whatever deal was made with the producers to, if the film is successful beyond just selling to the foreign markets, anything that comes in, sort of the, um, ideally the back end, um, the life of the film or whatever the, the contract was, like the a 10-year, 25-year license of the film property, uh, exploiting that exp- um, IP um, allows for wealth over time and and so, yeah, it's it's the same is done in your world as it is the the writer's world as it is the in, uber independent filmmaker's world. And I think that's the big thing for the uber independent filmmaker to see is that if you don't work in a, a relationship with a distribution company, you had to do it on your own. You're going to have to cover all those bases yourself. And um, and it was I was curious about sort of the marketing aspect of. Um, how do you, how does like Mar Vista handle like marketing aspects for different films? Is you know is the marketing department big or or is it just varies on each film that comes out? In truth, uh, our our marketing department uh, is in a huge process of growing right now, as most companies are, and the reason is um, as we're start the division I'm running is, is Mar Vista Digital Entertainment, it's MVD, mm-hmm. what we call it, um, and 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 I've with my team and we, we brokered deals direct with Google, with Amazon, with, with in demand, which owns time Warner Comcast and, and a couple others or, or gets content to them, I should say. Um, you know, I'm, I, I had lunch with the guys at iTunes and, you know, direct TV and everything else. Um, so the, what it is we're doing is 
you know, we're going out and we're acquiring movies and we're marketing them to these clients. And then we are, once we kind of, you know, like place them on, on platforms, we are then marketing the movie itself and driving traffic to it. So it's, it's one thing of working with our clients, getting those movies in the best possible placement they can be, and then working with each movie as a unique entity, finding its niche audience, and driving traffic to it. So it has more eyeballs on it because of better placement on each platform. Mm-hmm. Each platform has a better, you know, target demographic than the other. Uh, and then, you know, we're driving ad dollars, marketing spend, and eyeballs to each of those. And those turn into transaction, which turns into money in the filmmaker's pocket. So, I mean, that's kind of the process we're following there. And you mentioned Kickstarter. You mentioned uh, any of these, like, grassroots ways of getting money. It's no different than what I do on a daily basis. <laughs> I'm going out. It's true. I'm going out. I'm saying, this is my movie. This is the project we want to bring to you. Uh, and it, it, more or less, I'm, I'm doing it on a bigger scale, which is I'm looking for major cash payments from clients. Um, or I'm trying to broker output deals so they're guaranteed to buy a certain number of movies from me each year. Uh, wherever they are in the world. Um, but the, the point is, is that whether the movie's done or not done, and I'm trying to pre-sell it, the point is I go out and I, I give it all the razzle-dazzle uh, and, and, and presentation that I can. I try to do my best to present it as what the movie will be. So you're not buying, you're not investing in my script. You're investing in what will be eventually. And uh, you can have a stake in that. And whether it's, a company in Moscow buying in early, whether it's a company in Beirut buying in early, or whether it's a dude in, in Omaha, Nebraska saying, you know what, I kind of like that movie. I'll give you five bucks, and you build from there. The bottom line is a filmmaker and as a writer and anyone who's looking for a job or anything else, you go out and you market yourself. You market what it is you can bring to the table. And that's how you get people to notice your work and notice you as the person who can do that work. Uh, and if you're using your script, your script is no different than a resume. You're bringing it to the table. You're saying, this is what I can deliver. What ideas do you have? And I'll give them to you. you know, I'll, I'll turn your ideas into a treatment. I'll turn your ideas into a screenplay. Uh, and I'll make your job easier because now you don't have to go search through as many scripts and you can depend on me to do it right the first time. Mm-hmm. It's a job interview. That's what a pitch meeting is. That's, you know, that's, that's how it works. You're, you're going in to solve Hollywood's problems by delivering scripts that fill a need that they have. It may not be as sexy as you know, a, a, a passion project, a coming-of-age story, uh, you know, something that, that's really moving to you. And, and, you know, but it, it's, it's needed. It's necessary. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a mom in Iowa who has three screaming kids who just wants to put something on to keep them calm for a bit. There's a tween girl in Chicago who's clicking through movies looking for something that speaks to her directly, and she's not somebody who has any interest in a hard-hitting drama. There's a young boy who's you know, curious about what it would be like to be uh, called upon by the CIA to be a spy. And he finds that movie on, on Google and wants to buy it. Uh, you know, this is the real marketplace. This is where the real dollars come in. And this is what Hollywood banks on. Uh, and if you can tap into that 
early. If you can hit that point, wherever you are in your career, if you can hit it now, uh, you'll start to see doors opening, emails getting responded to, and phone calls getting returned. Um, there's a lot of talented writers in Hollywood. As I said, there's tons of talented writers, and there's no shortage of scripts. Problem is the majority of them just aren't hitting the right genres the right way, and, and the book lays out what you need to do, what scripts you need to write, how you need to talk about them, ways you can learn to fake confidence so you can talk about them better, because, I mean, you know, not everyone born is a great speaker. Um, and, you know, writers are, a lot of writers are naturally shy. It's okay, and there's ways you can fake the confidence so you can hit all this and, and hit this game plan and really get your career moving not just see one script, maybe have a blip. And that concludes my interview or the rebroadcast of my interview with Scott Kirkpatrick. And again, think about picking up his book, uh, Writing for the Greenlight over at Amazon. And all the show notes, all the links to everything we talked about are available at filmtrooper.com forward slash 126 for episode number 126. If you like this interview, please think about leaving a ratings and review over in iTunes for me. Just go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes. That will take you to the iTunes page. And any ratings and review would be very, very helpful in spreading the word about this particular podcast. And of course, don't go away empty-handed because I have a free gift for you over at freegearguide.com. It's an equipment list of everything I use to make a feature film for $500 without a crew. Again, that's at freegearguide.com. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I will see you next time. Film Trooper, filmmaking freedom for the independent.